Hi everyone, thanks again for tuning in. Um, just wanted to give a little plug for Right Now Media again. If you don't know what it is, it's kind of like a Christian Netflix where there's all sorts of devotionals and Bible studies and conference sessions and all sorts of stuff on there. Good stuff for us to utilize and use during this time when we're stuck at home still. And we have a resources page on the website. If you don't have access to it, you can go directly to that, sign up there. Uh, if you're having trouble figuring it out, you can contact myself or Stephanie in the office and we can help you navigate all of those things. That's all from me. We hope that this morning uh, as we go through the songs and hear some uh, thoughts from the book of Hebrews that you'll be encouraged and, and enlightened and that it is uh, a time that you can truly worship our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. See you. 
Before we pray, I'd like to uh, give you uh, a verse from a well-known uh, hymn written by Newton, the author of Amazing Grace. This is one of his, all, all, one, uh, one more of his uh, great uh, hymns. How sweet the name of Jesus sounds in a believer's ear. It soothes our sorrows, heals our wounds, and drives away our fears. Let's pray together. Father, we are thankful to you today that we can cast all our care upon you. We pray, Father, for those in our congregation who have cares. Some have health issues, some financial issues, some father family concerns and just the cares of this world we would ask as we gather together today that you would enable us to cast all of our care upon you because you are the one who cares for us we are thankful for this and ask your blessing upon us as we gather together this is our prayer in the strong name of the lord jesus we pray amen Well, good morning. Uh, this morning we're going to be looking at Hebrews chapter 12, verses 4 through 17. Hebrews 12, verses 4 through 17. 
This is the word of God. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And have you completely forgotten this word of encouragement that addresses you as a father addresses his son? It says, My son, do not make light of the Lord's discipline, and do not lose heart when he rebukes you, because the Lord disciplines the one he loves, and he chastens everyone he accepts as his son. Endure hardship as discipline. God is treating you as children. For what children are not disciplined by their father? If you are not disciplined, and everyone undergoes discipline, then you are not legitimate, not true sons and daughters at all. Moreover, we have all had human fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them for it. How much more should we submit to the Father of spirits and live? They disciplined us for a little while as they thought best. But God disciplines us for our good, in order that we may share in his holiness. No discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. Therefore, strengthen your feeble arms and weak knees. Make level paths for your feet, so that the lame may not be disabled, but rather healed. Make every effort to live in peace with everyone and to be holy. Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one falls short of the grace of God, and that no bitter root grows up to cause trouble and defile many. See that no one is sexually immoral or is godless like Esau, who for a single meal sold his inheritance rights as the oldest son. Afterward, as you know, when he wanted to inherit this blessing, he was rejected. Even though he sought the blessing with tears, he could not change what he had done. Now, uh, last week, we ended by looking at chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. And those are very famous words, ones that you're very familiar with, about how because we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, we are to throw off sort of every weight, we're to throw off every sin and everything that so easily entangles us, and we're to run the race with perseverance, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. And there's a reminder that it was for the joy set before him that he endured the cross, scorning its shame. So we are to consider him who, in going through the cross, ended up established at the right hand of God. So don't grow weary and don't lose heart is the message of the text. Now, part of the implication there is that if you may be growing weary or you may be losing heart, you're trying to throw off sin, you're trying to get rid of all the weights that entangle you, uh, you are likely experiencing some difficult things in life. In fact, the, uh, before chapter 12, verses 1 through 3, the end of Hebrews 11 reminds us that many, many people who had great faith in God suffered tremendously. Uh, they suffered for a variety of reasons. Uh, but the, a lot of them were actually persecuted because of their righteousness, because they aligned with the people of God, and because they were uh, intent on pursuing what was honoring to God, they received the wrath of the world. And this is one of the messages of Revelation, uh, the book of Revelation, 
That is, there is wrath, and, and those who persist in rebellion against God experience the wrath of the Lamb. Those who, ex- who persist uh, in honoring God experience the wrath of the dragon. And so it's not really a matter of, are you going to go through life without any experience of wrath? The real question is, whose wrath are you going to receive? Uh, the, the anger and righteous wrath of God? Or the destructive anger and power of the devil? And so here, one of the things that you find is that as you run the race, as you try to follow Jesus... This is not a pathway that's going to be easy to walk, or to run, rather. Uh, There are going to be all kinds of obstacles, some internal in your own heart and mind, others external, uh, circumstantial, uh, environmental, uh, the way that people will respond to you, the way that the spiritual powers of darkness respond. There are going to be things that are extraordinarily difficult that you are going to need to to fix your eyes on Jesus Follow him and persevere as well as you can by his grace, by the power of the Holy Spirit. And so the author says, just very matter of factly, listen, as you've been trying to resist sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. In other words, following Jesus could bring persecution, suffering, flogging, imprisonment, and even death. And so as you resist sin and follow Jesus, the author reminds you, you might die. You are experiencing all kinds of hardship. Now, it would be possible, it would be entirely possible just as a human being, to be experiencing opposition and hardship, suffering, turmoil, and persecution physically, mentally, emotionally, psychologically, spiritually. And to really feel that maybe you've been abandoned by God. Maybe somehow God is no longer concerned with blessing you. I mean, if, if, if God was, was interested in your life, why would you be suffering the way that you are? You know, if God really was omnipotent, then why wouldn't he just stop those who are oppressing you? Why wouldn't he just stop and silence the persecutors and accusers? Sometimes he does. But often he doesn't. What, what sense do we make out of life? Well, one angle, not every angle, uh, not, not all the multifaceted angles, but one angle is that when we are experiencing hardship, it may be because God is, is using that hardship to discipline us, to make us purer, to make us stronger. Now, part of the problem with evangelicalism in general is that we're, we're, we're just shockingly, amazingly adept at coming up with 
um, cookie-cutter uh, patterns that everything and everyone fits into. And so often, I, I'm convinced that a lot of our, our sort of our evangelical theologizing and uh, application of biblical or ethical or theological principles, it's not so much that, that we're completely wrong, is that we have almost no nuance. We have no precision. And we also don't have any room for a lot of gray areas. We're, we're very good at imposing just black and white patterns and reducing very complex realities, very messy realities, to sort of pious cliches or, or just sort of Christian platitudes. And so we don't want to say, well, every single time someone's suffering, it's because God is disciplining them for something in their life that's wrong. Uh, we, we recognize that Job's friends, when, when they accused Job of being punished for his wickedness, they were completely wrong. But neither was God disciplining Job in, during that uh, event, or during the, that time in his life. In, in fact, Job was suffering only because he was the most righteous man around. So he was suffering for his righteousness. Just like Joseph. When Joseph is thrown into jail, it's because he refused to commit adultery with Potiphar's wife. He was punished in the Egyptian legal system unjustly because he did what was right. And so you can't come along to Joseph and say, well, Joseph, you know, after all, God must be trying to teach you something. Clearly, you've done something wrong. No. Sometimes people are punished for their wickedness. Sometimes people are disciplined by God as their father. Sometimes people are simply unjustly and unfairly mistreated and suffer. So, so you, you can't go just sort of in, into a field of genocide, like in Rwanda, and say to people, so, well, 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 don't worry. Maybe God's just disciplining you. Oh, oh don't worry. You know, have you ever read Romans 8.28? This is, this is just going to work out for your good if, if you know God. There are deep and profound truths that become absolutely horribly cruel unless applied at the right time and applied in the right way. Truth always needs to be spoken in love. Where we fail to speak truth and where we fail or when we fail to love, uh, I, either one is disastrous. Either one hurts people. So this is one angle, one. It's an important one. That is, when you are experiencing hardship, it may be that God is disciplining you as your father. In fact, this is, believe it or not, supposed to be a word of encouragement. And here's the reason, verse 5. You have, have you completely forgotten the word of encouragement that addresses you as a father addresses his son? It says, my son... Do not make light of the Lord's discipline and do not lose heart when he rebukes you. 
because the Lord disciplines the one he loves and he chastens everyone he accepts as his son. Now, how exactly is that encouraging? Well, it's encouraging because it's a reminder of this. If God is disciplining you, it's a reminder of the relationship that you sustain towards him and that he sustains towards you. That is, he is disciplining you because you're his child. It's a reminder that he is your father. And, and so if nothing else, you, you should be able to find some comfort and hope that no matter what's going on in the world, you know, when you pray, you address our father who is in heaven. He is your father. He loves you and he cares for you and he will protect you. And he will protect you sometimes by disciplining you, by helping you grow, by helping you change. He sees you as his real son. And the masculine language here, of course, is because the sons were the ones who received the inheritance. You know, they were, they were the true heirs. And so to be a son of God, it's not a gender or, or biological sex issue. It's, it's an issue of inheritance. Every single believer is a son of God in this sense that they receive the fullness of the estate. They, have, they receive all that the Father has to give. And so because God has this relationship with us, he wants us to bear the family image. That is, he, he wants us to be his representatives in the world so that when people see us, they see uh, the truth of the old expression, like father, like son. He wants his children to show the world what he looks like. And he does that through his children. Like father, like son. In fact, this is actually one of the ways. I mean, John's gospel, John 5 and John 8 especially, make this very clear that one of the ways that Jesus is the son of God is not just ontological. That is, it's not just that he shares the essence and nature of God, which although he does, it's that he also functions as the son of God. That is, he does all that the father does. It's almost like the son is the apprentice of the father. And everything the Father does, he shows the Son. And everything the Father does, the Son does too. He's the spinning image of the Father. The apple doesn't fall far from the tree. All those kinds of expressions. Jesus is quintessentially the epitome of the Son of God. Because he is the exact representation of the image of the Father. And so as we learn to live as children of God, we are to learn how to act in a way which reveals the character of God as well. God disciplines you because you're his child. You know, this, this text talks about human fathers and says, listen, we had fathers who, who disciplined us as, as they thought was best. You know, and, and there are, you know, obviously, as a parent, if you, if you care about your children at all, you realize, although, although you, you enact this so horribly imperfectly, but you realize that there are certain goals that you have for your kids, and discipline is part of training them to be you know, responsible adults. Now, 
So the text says, we have earthly fathers. We all have fathers who, who tried to raise us as best they could. You know, they might not have been very wise. They might not have been, been very good. They, they, they had their own struggles too. But they, they, they disciplined us. They wanted us to behave properly. They wanted us to grow, to be responsible adults. And discipline is one way of bringing that about. Now, the question, of course, then is this. Do children like to be disciplined? And the answer, of course, is no. I mean, this is sort of one of those diagnostic sort of uh, ways of, of understanding if you're disciplining someone at all. Um, if someone enjoys it, it's not discipline. So if, if children are enjoying the disciplinary measures, then you're not disciplining them at all. You're rewarding them. And, and so discipline, by its very nature, is not something which is pleasurable. So then the question is, you know, if, if you're going to do something which isn't very pleasurable for your kids, why would you do that? And, and sadly for us, if we're being very honest, uh, parents, if you're being very, very honest, Often you will acknowledge that the reason you discipline your children in the moment is because you're annoyed. It's because you've run out of patience. It's because you're frazzled and your energy has gone in so many different directions or you're carrying the weight of the world and you just want some quiet and you just want some peace. Or, um, you know, one of the one of the blessings of COVID is I haven't seen this for a while. But you also know what it's like to be out in public and to see kids misbehaving and their parents threatening them or or doing something to stop them. And you realize you can just tell the parent is not so much interested in actually helping the child as it is that the parent is embarrassed personally for how their child is behaving and they want the child to stop so that they are not embarrassed. Very little to do with the good of the child. It has more to do with their own ego. Are parents always right in when they discipline and how they do it? No. No, not at all. Often parents discipline when they shouldn't. Often they are too harsh. Often they don't discipline when they should. We all get it wrong all the time. The good news, of course, is that God loves us too much to discipline us when we don't deserve it. He's too fair and just. He knows everything, so he never gets the case wrong. He always knows what's best. And he loves us too much to give us less than what's best. So when God disciplines us, we know that he hasn't judged wrongly. And he's not using unwise measures. And it's flowing out of a heart that genuinely loves us and has our best interest in place. So, God does this that we may share in his holiness. Far, far greater than any human father could ever be. God is at work in our lives through everything to make us to be holy and to participate in 
his holiness. This is how we take on the family image. God is holy. And so he starts to make us holy as well. The discipline isn't pleasant at the time. It's painful. But in the end, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. So this is an amazing thing. Is that, that as God goes to work, in the same way that you know you, you have to uh, break up soil, remove rock. I mean, depending on, of course, uh, you know where you are uh, in the world, you may need to remove rock. Uh, you have to weed. You have to plant. You have to do a lot of hard work. You do a lot of hard work in that garden. But later on, what God is doing is as, as he's breaking up the soil of our hearts and, and then tending to it, his long-term goal is he's going to produce a harvest of righteousness and peace. That's what he's going to do. So he trains us. And in that discipline, in that hard work, what, what's coming out of it is incredible. A harvest of righteousness and peace, something completely worth waiting for. As the Holy Spirit of God, you know, you get a different lens of this, Galatians 5, 22 through 23. Uh, as the Holy Spirit of God is at work to produce his fruit in our hearts and in our lives. One day, there is going to be a harvest that's going to make it all worthwhile. The discipline will make us disciplined people. People with self-control. The Spirit will produce his fruit in our lives. Therefore, verse 12 and 13, Strengthen your feeble arms and weak knees. Make level paths for your feet, so that the lay may not be disabled, but rather healed. This probably calls us back to, to verses uh, 1 through 3 of chapter 12. You've got a race to run. Get rid of sin. Get rid of everything that entangles you and run. Fix your eyes on Jesus and run. Strengthen your arms and your knees. Make the, make the path level. Help the lame. Help them to be healed, not hurt. It takes, it takes discipline to run. Although I have to admit, I used to, I used to do a fair bit, a fair bit of, of medium long distance running. I, you know, I, used to, I used to run, you know, a couple 6Ks and a 12K a week. My, my feet, my feet of all things, couldn't handle the pounding and on the pavement. I'm not, not biometrically shaped for running, apparently, at least from the ankles down. Um, I used to love it. I, I, I used to love just, just going out in the countryside and running and, and thinking or, or just having a clear mind, just thinking about the next step. God calls us to run, and it takes discipline to run. It takes discipline to start running. It takes discipline to persevere in running. But there is a reward in running which is beautiful, which makes it worthwhile. Those who love to run, love to run. And God can cultivate that, that in us too, so that we just, we just want to grow. We want to be strong. We want to be healed. We want to be holy. So because God is doing that, he's calling us to renew our strength to run the race. He then sort of shifts, the author shifts to, to, to sort of leaving the metaphor a little bit, but showing us what it's going to look like. He says, make every effort. Again, work hard for this. Run hard. Make every effort to live in peace with everyone and to be holy. 
So if we're going to have a harvest of righteousness and peace, then we need to make every effort to live with to live at peace with everyone. You know, Paul was saying something very similar in Romans. As much as it depends on you, live at peace with all with all people, with everyone. I mean, the difficulty is that sometimes there are some people you just can't be at peace with. That is, they they won't be at peace with you. Frankly, it doesn't take two to go to war. It just takes one. You can't you can't have peace. You can't have harmony with those who persist in antagonism and warfare. There was no peace possible to be made with Hitler. There, there, sometimes you cannot live at peace with certain people. Make every effort to, to do so. As much as it depends on you, try to be a peacemaker. And be holy. Holiness is a non-negotiable for seeing the Lord. Uh, there is a positional holiness that we have that is, in one sense, because of the work of Christ in our salvation, we already are holy. We're already considered saints by God. But there's another sense in which growing in holiness is a process. We call this uh, sanctification, either positional sanctification, that is, we're holy now, or progressive sanctification, that is, we're growing in holiness. We're growing to be more like Jesus. But if you don't have any holiness whatsoever, then you won't see God. It's because growth in holiness is evidence of saving faith. That is, that progression in holiness is evidence of that positional holiness which every Christian has. Every believer in Jesus is holy in the Son. As they're united to Him, they're flawlessly, perfectly holy. As righteous as He is. But, but subjectively, every one of us is at a different place in terms of our expression of that and our drawing down of it into our personal lives. But where there is no holiness whatsoever, you will not see God. Without holiness, no one will see God. Because you can't actually have saving faith and have no holiness whatsoever. You are, you are chosen to belong to God, reserved for Him. And if you flout that, throw it away, just, just go and live any way you want, and it's proof that you don't know God through Jesus. This is not about be holy so that you can earn your salvation. This is not about be holy, make yourself good enough to stand in the presence of God. It's not that at all. But it's saying if you don't have any holiness whatsoever, it's just proof that you don't know Jesus. See to it that no one falls short of the grace of God and that no bitter root grows up to cause trouble and defile many. Deuteronomy 29.18 uses this language of sort of this root of bitterness, or this bitter root. And, and it's not bitterness itself. It's, it's, it's a bitter root. In the context in Deuteronomy, it's about apostasy. That is, this, this bitter root causes people to fall away. So it's not a matter of personal emotional bitterness, that feeling of bitterness. It's sort of a, a, an image of falling away, of repudiating the covenant, falling away from God, pushing away his covenant people. 
Make sure that no one has that. Make sure that no one is, is throwing away the grace of God and, and drawing other people to reject him as well. See to it that no one is sexually immoral or is godless like Esau, who for a single meal sold his inheritance rights as the oldest son. Afterward, as you know, when he wanted to inherit this blessing, he was rejected. Even though he sought the blessing with tears, he could not change what he had done. So here, Esau stands as sort of a, a, a paradigmatic example of someone who has incredible covenant blessings. Firstborn son of Isaac. The special seed of Abraham. And what does he do? He forsakes all of those promises, all of those blessings for a meal of stew. He, he trades away his inheritance birthright for food, for his stomach. He's ruled by his appetites, by, by his sexual appetite, by his, his uh, appetite for food. He, he just stands as someone who's, who's a slave to, to sort of the, the, the whim of the moment. Utterly indulgent, no self-control, no desire for self-control. Again, you know, it's one thing to be striving for holiness and to fail and to sin. My phone's ringing. That's something new. It's probably Pastor Sam. Just one moment. Hey, Sam, I'm recording the message. Can I call you back in just a minute? All right, I'll call you back. Sorry, bye. Well, you know, that's just like church services. Sam interrupting and cell phones going off. Although that was actually my, my office landline. So Esau stands, you know, as this example of someone who just crassly trades all of their covenant blessings and holiness uh, in order to have the pleasures of the world. And, and again, it's one thing, it's totally different. You know, as you strive for holiness, if you fail, if, if you fall, if you, if you fall, but you're making a sustained effort. None of us is perfect. People fall. People fall into sin. People sin. That's why we're saved by grace. But the whole orientation of his life was crassly selfish and uh, utterly without self-control. He lived for his own desires. So much, un so different from Moses. Remember Moses in uh, Hebrews 11.25, he chose to be mistreated along with the people of God rather than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. Esau was the opposite. Esau threw his lot in with the fleeting pleasures of sin and traded away all of the covenant promises that God had for him. Afterwards, he sought the blessing, but he couldn't have it. He, he didn't care about it. And when he sought the blessing, he only sought to enrich himself. It was another form of selfishness. Look, God, God gives you the whole estate. He promises you everything. You are his son. You are his child. So don't settle. And, and don't live for transient things. Pursue God and pursue holiness. Fix your eyes on Jesus and run the race. Don't live for this world. 
and the sinful things that it provides. Without holiness, no one will see God. Because we are to make every effort to live in peace, and we know how difficult that may be, we're going to need help. We're going to need God's spirit and God's strength and God's grace. And so though I I often say, I I haven't been so much during these recorded uh, messages, because I don't know where you're going, if you can go anywhere, really. But when we're together and we part, I say, go in grace and peace. And because this text tells us to make every effort to live in peace, then I think it would be fitting for us to be blessed by God with grace that provides for peace. So, in light of our text, in light of needing holiness and needing to pursue God and run hard after Him, and to live at peace with all people, to that end, to the glory of God, go in grace and peace. Choose to be